Well, hey there, I'm Joshua Johnson, and the nightlight is on for Thursday, February 1st, 2024. Good to have you here on this first day of Black History Month. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin talked today about something that is very important to African-American men, prostate cancer. He copped to keeping his own cancer diagnosis secret, and he had a message for African-American men to protect our health. We will talk about the global fight against all kinds of cancers in just a moment, and another health issue that's not really being discussed. Plus, an update on the fight against diversity efforts at universities and some new polling about the various presidential campaign races that are shaping up. Be sure to go to nightlightjoshua.com for information on the podcast, Substack, merch store, and to put some dollars in the tip jar. Good to see everybody today following on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch. Hello to those of you who are watching over on X. Please note that I am not able to see your comments in the chat on X, but over on YouTube, there is a lovely group of people who would love to meet you, love to chat with you. We keep it very smart, civil, and super friendly, and more than a little bit silly over there. So jump over to YouTube. It's Nightlight Joshua on YouTube. Nightlight Joshua. And you can hang out with all of our lovely friends over there, including Nora. Hello, Nora. Good to see you. Why is the text so small? It's so weird the way that it does it. I'm going to figure this out one of these days. I swear I'm going to figure out why the text is so teeny tiny. There we go. Hello, Nora. Hello, Holly. Good to see you as well. Sarah, welcome to the chat today. Joseph, good to see you. Happy Thursday to you as well. Happy Black History Month to everybody. Today is the first day of Black History Month, February 1st. It is a it is a time that I, I've been joking with my partner, who is white, about this quite a bit. And so today we had a, a good little laugh in the car as I was dropping him off at the airport. I was like, it's finally time. Been waiting 11 months for this day. Happy Black History Month. Time to go to school. Chapter one, Africa. Like that's where I think that I think that's the way that a lot of people think about Black History Month even now and think about the conversations about black history and black heritage even now. Shut up, sucker. It's time to go to school, honky. Like that is not what we're going to do. <laughs> that is not the way that this is supposed to work. But I think that's the way it still feels for a lot of people. We had a good laugh about that, by the way. He wasn't like, oh, my God, what's wrong with you? Like with, that was not the reaction from him. We had a good giggle about that. But I think that's the way a lot of people still think about the conversations about diversity and race and, his and history and equity and her heritage and culture, particularly when it comes to black history. And we will talk a bit more about that in our conversations about the fight over diversity, equity, and inclusion at college campuses. I, uh, I, I love talking about this history because I think it's so fascinating. Um, there, are, there are some people who've made some black history kind of recently, actually. One in particular, do I want to show it to you now? I'll show it to you later. I'm going to, I'm going to take a minute. I'm going to pull up the link. It's a story that I was going to show you a bit later, but since you asked, I might just bring it up for you now of a really interesting black inventor who was about to be honored. And it's so cool what he did. Uh, I will show that to you later. I'm going to make that a tease. We're going to do that a little bit later. I'm going to uh, hide this. I'm going to call this Black Inventor. I'm just going to hide this as a tab in my browser. There's a few interesting stories actually today that I wanted to talk to you about. Starting, let's start with some presidential election stuff, and then I will work my way back to Lloyd Austin. Again, for those of you who are watching, feel free to put your questions and comments in the chat. Tons to talk about. But I want to begin with some election-related developments. 
there is new polling about how the presidential race is going. And you, you, you know I don't really like a whole lot of the horse race stuff, but I think that there are a couple of things that need to be put into kind of a, a new context as new numbers come out, especially because one of the more reputable polls, the poll from Quinnipiac University, uh, updated just yesterday. I didn't notice it until just this morning. But I wanted to kind of show you one of the, the latest updates. A lot has been made of the issues with the Biden campaign compared to the Trump campaign and America's apparent discontent with the incumbent president. A lot of people have said that if it came to a head-to-head matchup, that Trump stands a solid chance of knocking over Joe Biden. Nikki Haley had campaigned and still is campaigning on the argument that polling shows that a head-to-head matchup between her and Joe Biden shows that she would prevail well outside of the margin of error. Whether she would or not, of course, would remain to be seen, depending on whether she becomes the nominee. And no, it is not impossible for Nikki Haley to become the Republican presidential nominee. I think depending on what happens to Donald Trump in court, that could disqualify him. And those are courts ranging from district courts in Manhattan to the federal courts to the U.S. Supreme Court. There are so many different court fights that could affect his presidential run. But if there's one thing that we have learned, it's that that nickname of Teflon Don was well-earned. So it's not a cinch that any of those things would knock him out. As a matter of fact, the state of Illinois just voted to, or the state Supreme Court voted that he should remain on Illinois' ballots, despite the concerns about constitutional challenges and whether he is constitutionally eligible to be on the ballot based on what happened on January 6th. So we'll see. But in terms of the polling, Quinnipiac's poll just updated yesterday. And that head-to-head matchup between Biden and Trump that has looked so close for all of this time is no longer as close as it had been. According to Quinnipiac, it shows that Nikki Haley still leads Joe Biden one-on-one. But Joe Biden has pulled ahead He has grown his lead over Donald Trump. The latest poll from Quinnipiac, and again, I love the fact that on a Quinnipiac press release, they always include the pronunciation of the name of the university because everyone gets it wrong all the time. It's Quinnipiac. Emphasis on the first syllable, Quinnipiac. Anyway, in the latest Quinnipiac poll, Joe Biden's lead over Donald Trump is 50% Biden, 44% Trump. That is a greater lead than previous polls had shown. Previous polls were very, very close. And there was one poll in, I think, mid-November that showed Donald Trump ahead of Joe Biden, not far out of, well, within the margin of error, but by a few more points. Previous polls still show Joe Biden ahead by like a point or two. This one shows a more solid lead over Donald Trump in the polls. And this is a national poll of registered voters conducted in December 20th, 2023, which is normal. Usually there's kind of a lead time between when the poll is conducted and when the poll is released. So the fact that there is that time gap, I wouldn't read too much into that. Some polls move faster, some polls move slower. They all vary, but Quinnipiac tends to be a pretty solid poll. The, oh, excuse me, in the previous poll, in the December 20th poll, it was too close to call. In the current poll, it's 50 to 44. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that incorrectly. Today's poll, Democrats obviously very solidly for Joe Biden. Independents also solidly for Joe Biden. 52% of independents said that they support Biden. 40%, 40% say they support Donald Trump. 
obviously Republicans are extremely solidly behind Donald Trump. But there are other findings from the Quinnipiac poll as well. Among women, that gap is widening. Back in December, the poll was 53 Biden, 41 Trump. Now it's 58 Biden, 36 Trump. Among men, it's pretty much the same. Last poll in December was 51-41 favoring Biden. Now it's 53-42 favoring, excuse me, 51-41 favoring Trump. I can read. I swear to God, I actually am a fully literate human being. I'm going to try that one more time. Among men, support still leans toward Donald Trump. That's the answer. In December, it was 51-41 Trump. Now it's 53-42 Trump. So not a huge difference, probably some reshuffling as some of the other candidates have fallen away, particularly on the, the Republican side. But the gender gap is going to be key and has been key before. I certainly think that the demise of Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey is a factor in this over time, but it also is not the primary reason why voters are voting right now. We know that the economy is, was, and probably will remain the number one reason that drives people's decisions at the polls. That is very normal. What's going on around the world, some of the social issues, cultural, so-called cultural war issues, the international conflicts that we're in, Israel, those will play a part. I will be interested to see how the situation in the Middle East plays a greater part as time goes on, but economy is number one. And Republicans have been making compelling cases about the Biden administration being weak on the economy. I don't know that I agree that the Biden administration is actually weak on the economy on the numbers. Just yesterday, Jerome Powell, who's the chairman of the Federal Reserve, did a news conference and he was like, the, the economy is, is quite good. There's kind of no two ways around it. They backed off on raising interest rates even further. He did note that the economy looks like it's going to slow down, that it's not going to grow at the same rate, but he did not use the R word. It does not look like we're heading for a recession. The problem is that people don't feel as good about their personal economy as the Jerome Powells of the world feel about the national economy. Wall Street and Main Street are not talking the same language. They rarely do. But particularly now, with all the changes going on in the economy, it feels viscerally like we're adrift, like what the hell is going on. On a larger level, though, it isn't that dire, at least to the people who look at it on a larger level for a living like Jerome Powell and like Joe Biden. So you've got all these big economic programs, the Infrastructure Bill and the Inflation Reduction Act and so on, that are going to have huge impacts, huge, down the line. But I got to pay rent today, right? It's the first of the month, literally today. When I leave here, I'm, I am going to pay rent on this apartment where I'm doing this show right now. So that's a whole other kind of economy. And I don't know how much more Republicans are going to push the economic message rather than the Joe Biden is an old, woke, liberal, hippie message or whatever the hell. Like, I, I think that the economic message is a much stronger argument. It's part of the argument that Nikki Haley is making. I don't think her foreign policy argument is that far out of line with Joe Biden as much as the domestic arguments are. So I think that may be their best bet besides just trying to like make Joe Biden look like an old man who's sort of fated to fall down the stairs at some point. But, you know, further into the Quinnipiac poll, 
if you expand beyond Trump-Biden, if you include independent and Green Party candidates, which no one does, but which I think a lot of Americans would like to hear more about, just based on the polling that shows that most Americans are not thrilled with the kind of left-right, red-blue divide in this country. But, so if you include independents and Green Party candidates, Joe Biden gets 39%, Trump gets 37%. There, it does remain quite close. Why? Because Robert F. Kennedy is getting 14%, 1-4%. Professor Cornell West, who is an independent, also running as an independent, gets 3%. Jill Stein, who is running again under the Green Party, gets 2% support. Marianne Williamson is listed in another Quinnipiac poll, in which she, in some cases, has done rather well and has consolidated support among independents. But in this five-person run, she is not in the, in the top five. Among the independents, Biden 35, Trump 27, Kennedy, 24%. West gets five. Stein gets five. So there is a there is a split among independents as well, where Biden still predominates among all voters and among independent voters specifically. Trump still comes in second among all voters and independent voters. Robert F. Kennedy does 10 points better among independents than Democrats, than, than everyone. 10 points better among independents than everyone. That kind of, that is not a shock. What about Biden versus Haley? Her argument remains pretty compelling. Hypothetical Biden-Haley matchup, according to Quinnipiac, Haley gets 47%, Biden gets 42 That's significant. Democrats support Biden, Republicans support Haley. Independents in that Biden-Haley matchup, they say they support Haley. 53% for Haley, 37% for Biden among independent voters specifically. That could be significant. And I think that's a strong argument that Nikki Haley can make and should continue to make if she wants to continue to have a campaign, is that Donald Trump is a no-go for Democrats, clearly. But even for independents, they're not swayed by him. They're not really, they don't really dig him. And they haven't for a very long time. I mean, remember, 52 among independents, if it's Biden-Trump, Biden gets 52, Trump gets 40. That is a solid loss. But among independents, Biden gets 53, Biden gets 37, Haley gets 53 among independents. And independents sway the electorate. I think that's a case that she needs to keep on making and making very, very vocally. Take Trump out of the picture. If it's Biden-Haley and the independents, Biden still wins in a five-person race. If you throw in the independents and the Green Party candidates, Biden gets 36%, Haley gets 29%. Robert F. Kennedy gets 21%, and again, Cornell West gets 3%, Jill Stein gets 2 So I find this interesting in terms of where independent voters go and what they, what they accept, what they approve of, which way they lean, and what they're, what they're feeling in terms of the various candidates that they have, particularly if they're given different options. I don't see how viable, and I think, if you give me just a moment, I think there was a journal editorial board comment about this just today, which I now need to find. But I think that there are more and more concerns about the viability of the Trump campaign particularly just because of some of the drama around it. Here it is. There was an item from the Wall Street Journal's editorial board today 
about the whole Taylor Swift drama, the Taylor Swift psyop, as some have called it, psychological op, uh, operate, operations. And this, this is the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal, which leans clearly to the right. First sentence in their editorial. What does it imply about the political vulnerabilities of Donald Trump that some of his wingmen are saying he might lose the 2024 election because of Taylor Swift? Mm. That is not that is not a vote of confidence. And then all the way down at the bottom of the piece, a question though for the trolls, meaning the internet trolls. If they believe defeating Mr. Trump is so easy, that Mr. Biden can do it merely by getting an endorsement from a singer who backed him in 2020, doesn't that suggest the GOP might be making a mistake by nominating such a weak candidate? That's the Wall Street Journal talking. That, granted, also speaks to some of the big money donors that Nikki Haley is courting. So they're not necessarily talking to the same Republicans. Nikki Haley is talking to kind of more moneyed, independent-minded, pragmatic, less probably culturally, ideologically driven Republicans and conservatives and independents who are giving her a chance, whereas Donald Trump is speaking to the kind of make America great again, official Republican Party imprimatur, talking points action kind of Republicans. Like they are, they are not talking to the same groups of people. So this editorial might be talking to the old Republican Party, not the Republican Party that's in charge right now. I think it's possible, but I think the case is kind of compelling. Like, if that's the way this goes, then what does that say about how you're really doing, that you got to make it about Taylor Swift? Very strange. Very, very strange. As for President Biden, he continues to have a negative approval rating. 41% say they disapprove, according to Quinnipiac. 55% say they approve. But it is his highest job approval in this poll since June of 2023. That's not great. As far as his handling of different issues, Quinnipiac says his response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, 47% approval, 46% disapproval. Pretty mixed. The economy, again, issue one as far as I'm concerned, 42% approve, 55% disapprove. Foreign policy, 37% approve, 57% disapprove. That tracks with his response to the war between Israel and Hamas, 34 approve, 56 disapprove. And the situation at the border, probably his worst of the issues, 28% approve, 63% disapprove. So you got a lot of ground to make up. And I don't see how he's going to make it up in time. I just don't see how that grows at this point. And I don't see how it gets any better or any more solid at this point. But that's Quinnipiac. I wanted to take a look at one more of these polls. But first, give me just a second. And I want to look at the chat and see what is going on with, with y'all. Because I know, I know how y'all are. I'll be over here teaching class and then you'll be in the back of the room telling jokes and throwing spitballs. I've gotten to know my audience. I love you very much, but you've, you're you very transparent. Joseph wrote on YouTube, even if Trump gets the nomination, I kind of hope she runs anyway and splits the vote with a fingers crossed emoji. You know what? I've been thinking about the same thing. Honest to God, I don't see why she wouldn't. I see why Ron DeSantis wouldn't. I don't think Ron DeSantis is the type to do an independent campaign. He just he just doesn't really strike me that way. 
particularly because he had made the argument that we should make America Florida again and do all of the things in Florida, in the rest of the country that he's been able to, to do in the state of Florida. I just don't think that's a strong enough case for him to break away. I think he also kind of intimated this when he was on the trail in Iowa during one of the town halls, that he spoke to some people who said, I'm not ready to vote for you this time, but come back in 2028 and I might consider it. So the fact that he said that publicly means he's thinking about it privately, at least I think so. And he's at least trying to plant the seed for some folks that if all this doesn't work out, I'm still going to be here. And Ron DeSantis is He's, he's about my age. I think he's a little, I'm 43. I think he's a little older than me, like 45, 46. So he's quite young enough to be able to run again, presuming that he remains politically viable. Nikki Haley, I could totally see her splitting the vote. I do not see her as being the kind of Republican who is so loyal to the party as a party that she doesn't see the potential in her ability to run because of the very poll numbers that I just showed you. So yes, I could I could see that completely. I could see that completely. Um, I see y'all talking about I see y'all talking about Black History Month. We will get to that in just a little bit. But let me show you this other poll. This is another I think a good reputable poll. This is the Washington Post Monmouth poll, which shows South Carolina specifically, which is the next big contest we're thinking of. And before I get to this, I do want to note Nevada is coming up next week. Uh, the primaries are on the the 6th. The caucuses are on the 9th. Because remember, the Republican Party decided to do caucuses, even though the state of Nevada decided to lean toward primaries. The party said, we're not doing that. And anyone who runs in the primaries is disqualified from the caucuses. And only the caucuses will count toward Republican delegates. Nikki Haley's doing the primary. Donald Trump is doing the caucuses. So she's not going to get any delegates out of Nevada. And it kind of is a, it's, it's a really weird election year. Like I thought moving here, I was gonna be like, oh, Nevada, it's gonna be so interesting come February. Pfft, nothing. So that did not happen. But South Carolina is the next contest to watch because Nevada is kind of a, a waste of, of energy at this point. I'm not even gonna pay much attention to it. I will report it out once it happens, but it's we know it's gonna happen. Anyway, the new Washington Post Monmouth University poll, not surprisingly, shows Donald Trump with a significant lead in South Carolina ahead of their primary, which is on February 24th. According to the poll, Donald Trump is at 58% among potential Republican primary voters. And again, this is specifically South Carolina. Nikki Haley, who was the former governor of South Carolina, who is a native of South Carolina, 32%. Trump, 58%. Haley, 32%. She's trying to get some momentum from how things went in New Hampshire, where she she didn't take a huge dive. She kind of held her own, but is clearly trailing Donald Trump. The poll also asked if the Republican primary for president was held today, who would you vote for? Donald Trump, Nikki Haley, or someone else? And it breaks it down by different demographic groups. I told you among all potential Republican voters, it's 5832 Trump. Among voters who describe themselves as strong Republicans, which I don't know what that means. Is that like about what you deadlift? I don't, anyway. Strong Republicans, 77% Trump, 17% Haley. Among voters who say they're extremely motivated to vote, strongly for Trump. It may be more illuminating to look at the voters who say they were more for Nikki Haley. 
Not many groups. College graduates, that's close. She takes college graduates by two points, 46 to 44. So that's not a walk. Voters who describe themselves as more moderate or liberal, Haley, solid, 56% to 33% for Trump. Among voters who believe that Joe Biden won the 2020 election fairly, overwhelmingly for Nikki Haley, 70%, 70% for Nikki Haley. Among voters who support abortion rights in all or most cases, 50% Haley, 40% Trump. So it's not that big of a shock in terms of the demographics there. But when you think about who actually is in South Carolina, what the electorate in South Carolina looks like, it's the people who are going for Donald Trump. Granted, South Carolina has some rather large universities and it is an educated state, but very conservative, that goes for Trump. People who believe the lies about the 2020 election, that goes to Trump. People who are very strongly anti-abortion, that goes to Trump. Strong Republic, I mean, this is the Republican Party in South Carolina. It's not like the Republican Party in New Hampshire, where you could have a more moderate Republican like Chris Sununu do well in a state that also put Maggie Hassan in the Senate as a Democrat. This is not that. So I just don't see how that's supposed to work. And then, just to note, breaking it down further, Washington Post Monmouth University asked whether these primary voters, South Carolina Republicans, believe the lie about the 2020 election. 57% say they believe that it was because of voter fraud. 35% said they believe it was fair and square. That's the electorate. So a majority believe in the lie about voter fraud. And of those voters, nearly all of them go for Donald Trump. I don't think that looks good for Nikki Haley. I'm not sure what her strategy is to win those voters over or if she even can win those voters over. I'm not convinced. Plus, look deeper into that. Her favorability ratings among potential Republican voters in South Carolina have dropped since September. Back in September, Nikki Haley, again, the former governor of South Carolina, 59% favorable, 24% unfavorable. Now, it's down to 45% favorable, 41% unfavorable. Donald Trump's favorable, unfavorable rating is almost exactly the same. In fact, it's gotten better. September, 60%, 60% favorable. Now, 66% favorable. Unfavorable is pretty much flat, from 30% to 28%. So he's doing rather better. And this is in a poll with a margin of error of of 4.6 points. This is rather, excuse me, of 3.9 points for the current poll. The previous poll was 4.6. So he's doing better. She's doing worse by the numbers in terms of favorability. I do not know what the path forward looks like for Nikki Haley in her home state. I think if she can make it to, oh, beg your pardon, one more stat, enthusiasm. Trump definitely has more enthusiasm. If they ask, how would you feel if blank became the Republican nominee? Enthusiastic, satisfied, dissatisfied, or upset? Trump has a much stronger enthusiasm in South Carolina. 39% say they'd be enthusiastic. Only 20% say they'd be enthusiastic for Nikki Haley. Satisfied, they're a lot closer. 34% would be satisfied with Haley, only 30 for Trump. 
Dissatisfied? Haley way outstrips Trump in dissatisfaction. 24% dissatisfied if Haley became the nominee. Only 9% if Trump was the nominee. Upset is tied, pretty much. 20% for Trump, 19% for Haley. So you can see where the gap is. Trump gets a lot more enthusiasm. Haley gets a little more satisfaction, but a lot more dissatisfaction. I, I, I don't know where she goes. I don't know where she goes. Unless she can hang on until Super Tuesday. If she can do that, she might stand a chance. But I, I don't buy it. I, I'm, not, I'm not convinced. Beyond that, there are, there's one more little sideways piece of news from the background that I think that Donald Trump might also bring up on the campaign trail. Not because it's particularly relevant to the future, but maybe because it's not. And maybe because it is a little bit more of a distraction and we're kind of in distraction land right now. The whole Taylor Swift thing is a mega distraction. So I figured I'd just let you know anyway, just in case you hear about it. Remember the Steele dossier? I know some of you, you had a visceral reaction as soon as I said that. Unclench your butt. This ain't going to take long. Remember the Steele dossier? It was put together by operatives around the Democratic Party and supporters of Hillary Clinton to try to get, you know, information about Donald Trump that they could use, came up with all of this, these accusations about him being in the sway of the Kremlin and being involved in sex parties and all kinds of like kinky stuff. And then that didn't go anywhere, but the investigation with Robert Mueller prompted one of the impeachment charges, not because of what's in the dossier, but because of accusations that the former president was obstructing justice and sort of stonewalling that investigation at all. That's what led to the first impeachment. Well, Donald Trump sued in the UK over the Steele dossier, sued for defamation. Today, the UK's high court ruled on that lawsuit, and the court decided to throw the case out. So the Christopher Steele dossier case was thrown out. I'm looking at a piece from BBC News, and Christopher Steele's the guy who compiled this. He used to be the head of MI6, which is, or an officer with MI6, which is the UK's uh, spy agency. And Donald Trump's attempt to, tr to sue Christopher Steele over this, this dossier that was leaked just before Donald Trump was sworn in, was thrown out. A justice from the UK's high court didn't actually rule on the allegations themselves. The issue was that he brought the claim too late. The case stemmed from 2016. He didn't actually bring the case until last year, I believe. But the court said that he, it took him too long. He claimed that he didn't have time to sue before 2023 because he was busy being president, never mind that his presidency ended on January 20th, 2021 at 12.01 p.m. So it was just kind of too late. But the fact that this happened, that he's not going to get his day in court to go after Christopher Steele over this dossier is probably going to come up at some point in terms of the woe is me unfair treatment of Donald Trump. So I don't want to dig into it any further, but suffice it to say, that is more sauce for the goose at this point. And that will probably come up if passed this prologue, it's probably going to come up at some point. But that will remain stuck to the wall, I hope. And we won't have to deal with that too much. 
So those are some of the things that are going on. I think the poll numbers are worth knowing. They're worth noting. I still do not see what Nikki Haley's path forward is. I believe that she's got a constituency that may want her going forward. In fact, I know she's got a constituency. I just don't really see practically how she's going to make it far enough forward to get to that place where she can contest the delegates on the convention floor in Milwaukee or make enough of a case that she's going to she's a viable candidate unless she can come through Super Tuesday on March 5th with flying colors. And some of the Super Tuesday states like California, I think would definitely go for Nikki Haley over Donald Trump. Way for Nikki Haley. But will she make it that far? South Carolina is February 24th. The Republican caucus here in Nevada is on the 9th, so it's it's a week from tomorrow. The the caucuses are on the 9th. The primary like we said, the mean, the now meaningless primary is on the 6th. But can she make it to March 5th? If she can make it to March 5th, she might have a shot. And that's just a matter of her having enough money to make it to March 5th and running a lean enough operation. If that happens, could be interesting. Could be not, but it, it could be interesting. Let's pause for just a second. When we come back, I will get to some of your comments in the chat because I know that y'all are having a, a an interesting Black History Month conversation. Some of you are talking about the election, so we'll get to that in just a second. I do want to talk about Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary who talked today about his fight against prostate cancer. He says he's fine. He's doing okay. So we'll get to some of that. And I wanted to show you some of the numbers that I found about the fight against cancer, including a new report that came out today just the embargo just lifted on this report a few hours ago from the World Health Organization about the global fight against cancers. Prostate cancer is significant in this fight, but you might be interested to know what else is at the top of that list in terms of what's affecting various countries, what some of the factors are. It's actually pretty hopeful. Cancer is one of those things that we can do a lot about. It's actually a good thing, and the fact that Lloyd Austin is talking about it and that he apologized for not talking about it sooner is a very positive, hopefully a powerful message that could save a lot of lives. We'll talk about the fight against cancer and what we can do to hopefully eradicate it when we come back. This is The Nightlight. I'm Joshua Johnson. Good to have you with me today. Remember to go to my site, nightlightjoshua.com, for all the links to listen to this program as a podcast. It is now available on Spotify in its entirety, ad-free. I will be start making that, I will start making that available soon for premium subscribers. It will be ad-supported otherwise, but you can listen anytime on the go as a podcast if you like, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whenceever, wherever thou likest to get thy podcasts from it. Substack is also the place to read more of my original essays and articles. Premium subscribers can read the back catalog of my work, and you can also get the complete podcast episodes there. You can listen inside Substack on the Substack app, which works very much like a podcast app. You can also find all the links to watch on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter all three of which will feed comments into the live chat. You can get some Nightlight merch on the merch store, including our beloved Gullible Ain't Sexy t-shirts. 
I do have a picture of one of our fans wearing one of the Gullible Ain't Sexy t-shirts. I got to pull it up and show it to you, but I'll do that a little later. And there's also an online tip jar where if you just like what you hear on a particular day, but you don't feel like getting a subscription or a membership or having a recurring payment on your credit card, you can just drop a few dollars and kind of like a tip on your way out the door just to say thank you for the show and to send me a note to let me know if you have any questions, comments, complaints, critiques. Happy to hear your thoughts about how the show can be a better service for you. If nothing else, please remember to subscribe on YouTube. I am at Nightlight Joshua on YouTube, where you can watch the live stream. We'll also have segments pulled. And occasionally, soon, as soon as I am qualified to monetize there, I will post additional content just for subscribers on YouTube. I know this is a bunch of platforms. We're working on getting all the platforms to line up and serve you as well as possible. So in whatever way you want to support the show, or if you just want to show up, watch live, chat with all of our friends on the web, love to have you here. Thank you so, so very much for your continuing support of the show. Let me just check the chat. There are a few things I do want to get to. I know they all were talking about Black History Month a little on the chat, and I will get to that in just one second. I also see that some of you were talking about uh, cancer treatment, and I will get to that in just a moment. Let me, oh, I do like this one comment. Hang on, where is it? Let me find it. Let me find it. Give me just one second. Uh, oh, let's see, was it? Oh, Sarah, there you are. Sarah wrote, a radio station I listened to played a set of black music to welcome in the month. How much you want to bet no other mention is made? Entirely possible. I hope not. I hope not. Although, honestly, I, I, I even kind of struggle with how to mention Black History Month because I'm black. And I don't want to seem like it's, you know, like I've been waiting all year for this. You ready, white people? Here it come. Like, I don't want it to feel like that, like, you know, this is going to be the most melanated month of the year. And because it can very easily feel that way. Like we're pouring black content into one part of the year as a way of like trying to atone for what has happened <laughs> in the country in a lot of ways. It's a weird thing. And I understand the difficulty of weaving in content that's Afrocentric. One of the reasons why when I was on, you know, working in public radio, NPR took the very dramatic step that I think a lot of people still don't like of canceling a show called News and Notes, which was specifically a magazine focused on communities of color, particularly the black community. News of Notes had been hosted by a number of people over the years, Tavis Smiley, Ed Gordon, Tony Cox. It was a very good show. What NPR did, I think, was pretty smart. They created another program called Code Switch, which is a podcast and a content vertical. And what the Code Switch team does is they are basically like a desk within NPR, just like there's a science desk, there's a foreign desk, there's a politics desk, there's a domestic desk, desk there's a health desk, there's an uh, arts desk. Code Switch became a desk, and that meant they could feed content everywhere within NPR, not just news and notes. So as much as it felt weird to kind of lose that space, there was still the podcast. And then you could get on every one of the other platforms, which meant people who didn't think to listen to news and notes could still encounter the coverage of Code Switch everywhere. They might just run into it. And thus it was elevated to the same level as everything else on All Things Considered, as everything else on Morning Edition. I think the strategy makes sense. I think it also makes sense in kind of an increasingly digital world to mix things up a little bit. And it doesn't matter as much. Like if you want to hear Code Switch, you can listen to it anytime. 
You don't have to tune in when it's airing on your NPR station. That day is now over, but it had already begun to end when Code Switch happened. So I kind of see both sides of it. But yeah, doing like a, a full day of like black music and then whew, we've paid our penance. Back to Lawrence Welk. You know, it's, it's, that would feel weird. Nora writes, I was in Target last week and was sad to see that almost all of their Black History Month was identical to the superficial stuff they always have in February. I want a Nearest Green Bar Towel. Sigh. Yeah, Uncle Nearest uh, is one of the beverages that my family has gotten into. Um, let me see if I can find something on that real quick. It's a whiskey from Tennessee that is made. I don't want to mess up the story about it. Yes, I am of legal drinking age. Let me into the site. Goodness gracious. Um, but it is a, a whiskey brand out of uh, Kentucky, named after a man named Nathan Green, who was a distiller. And it is a very Afrocentric whiskey brand. Here's the site for Uncle Nearest. Don't look at this website until you're 21, unless you're 21. If you're not 21, please look away from the screen. But it is a bourbon and whiskey company. I am not a liquor drinker, but my family has uh, really taken to Uncle Nearest, and they love the fact that this Afrocentric brand has been doing so very well. So I'm sure they would love to have Nearest Green merch and everything and all of it. But there is a, uh, there's a film on Nearest Green's website, which is unclenearest.com, that kind of tells the whole story of, of, uh, of Nearest Green. And maybe, I don't know, maybe if I did listen to it, or if I did uh, sip some of it, then I might feel differently. I don't think you want to see me on whiskey or bourbon. I say enough dumb stuff on pure air. I do not need help. Joseph wrote on YouTube, speaking of overloaded music and Black History Month, I recently discovered the Thunderpuss remix version of Whitney Houston's It's Not Right, But It's Okay, and I'm living. You just discovered that, Joseph? You mean the one that starts... Yeah. That 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 is that is a while ago. I'm glad you just discovered it though. Better late than never. But yes, that is like the that is the. I cannot even I can't gesture big enough. That is the mix of all Whitney Houston. If you've never heard the Thunderpuss remix, for those of you who are watching, go on YouTube or Spotify or your music source of choice and put that on and tell me that you are not ready to go run a marathon or, you know, wrestle a tiger or go paint a house. Like it, it gives you energy. Whatever you need to get up for, Whitney Houston will get you up. And that is that is the cut. To politics, Holly wrote on YouTube, how does Haley sell these numbers to the middle? They don't like me at home, but you should definitely get on board. I... Don't know how she makes that sell other than to try to keep sticking it to Donald Trump. I think that's probably the best way in. I think that by and large, the party has written her off. The party has absolutely written her off. And I think that the press across the spectrum is really not interested in the Trump-Haley conversation anymore. You got to understand, we, we kind of are expecting the horse race every year. But this year, there's not much of a horse race. You got these two old nags, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, and then these young upstarts who are just not getting interest from the party. 
You got Dean Phillips on the Democratic side. You had Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who kind of tore his draws real bad because he just cannot stop dealing in conspiracy theories and rabbit holes. And then you've got Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis. DeSantis couldn't mount a viable campaign. Vivek Ramaswamy also fell into conspiracy rabbit holes, which was nutty. Chris Christie was too anti-Trump too quickly to make a viable campaign. So he fell away before Iowa, just before Iowa. I think if Nikki Haley's going to want to do it, she's going to have to kind of get into the Donald Trump ages, as it were. And she's going to have to make it more about him and less about herself. I know that sounds screwy for her to try to make her campaign, but I think she might have to kind of go after him in a very different way without looking angry about it, without looking like she's trying to come from behind. I think the underdog story can work. I don't think she needs to talk about her appeal to moderates, to abortion rights supporters, for sure, to college-educated voters. Like, I think that's those are elites. That's not going to work for her. I think if anything, she might want to talk about being the underdog. She might consider talking to South Carolinians about how odd it is that we used to love Donald Trump because he was the outcast underdog of national politics, and now for some reason he's the establishment and we forgot who we were as a party. That might, maybe, could possibly be a viable inroads, just getting people to reflect on, wait, who are we? And does Donald Trump still reflect who we are? We don't have to denounce him to thank him for what he did, but the movement that he started needs to keep evolving, and I'm the person to evolve it. She started making that case in Iowa and New Hampshire. Maybe there's a way forward with that, particularly on her own turf, to try to remind people of like, is this who we are? Is, is this what we're going to do? Are we going to let this be the case that we make to the rest of the world? But that's an edge case. All she needs to do is survive long enough to make it to Super Tuesday. And then if she can't pull away in Super Tuesday, I think that's, you can roll the credits after that. But perhaps that's a possibility. Perhaps it's a possibility. Nor I also like your other comment. I would love to see a polling question. If Trump dropped out and endorsed her, would you vote for Nikki Haley? That's an interesting question. I, I think the prospect of Donald Trump dropping out is so horrific to the Republican Party that people would be too shocked to answer the question. I think they would just want to skip it, honestly. I, I I really don't see how that's fathomable for voters or for party operatives, but it's but it's an interesting question. Skylar the writer. Hello, Skylar. Skylar writes, apologies if someone mentioned this earlier, but I heard that Black History Month is in February because black folks wanted to honor Lincoln's birthday month. Shaking my head, we played ourselves. I don't know if that's why it was in February. The reason it's in February is because Carter G. Woodson, who is a scholar of African-American history at Harvard, created what he called Negro History Week back in 1927, and then eventually it expanded from a week to a month. I believe the Lincoln thing is correct, though, but let me just look real quickly to try to corroborate that in terms of if that's why he put it in February. Um, let me just, give me just one second. I want to try to find a, a good, reliable source. Uh, is this a good, reliable source? Yes. Okay. So you are actually correct. This is from, I'll show you the page. This is from the Library of, Library of Congress, which is loc.gov. 
an amazingly deep trove of damn near everything. And there's a Black History Month page. And under history and overview at the top, National Black History Month has its origins in 1915 when historian and author Carter G. Woodson founded the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History. Uh, initially the first Negro History Week in 1926, excuse me, I think I said 27. I'm, I'm having a hard time with numbers today. We regret the inconvenience. 1926, Dr. Woodson selected the week in February, and again, this is according to the Library of Congress. Dr. Woodson selected the week in February that included the birthdays of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, two key figures in the history of black Americans. So there you go. It's a dual purpose. Abraham Lincoln, yes, but also Frederick Douglass. And Frederick Douglass is one of my favorite thinkers in terms of just his message of making things happen and kind of influencing the world. Frederick Douglass once said, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never has and it never will. I like that. That idea that if you want it, you're going to have to agitate for it. You're going to have to make it happen. It's not going to come to you, but it can come if you agitate for it. So yes, you are correct, but not just the month, but specifically the week that he picked because of Abraham Lincoln and also uh, Frederick Douglass, both of those together. Let me continue. <laughs> Skylar, you are very silly. Okay, arms. Yes. You didn't know? You didn't know this is what you're dealing with? This is, oh, yes. Oh, mama, got to have the biceps. Journalism is a dangerous industry. I need to keep myself safe. And I said, hey, I may not work for NBC anymore, but I said I was going to be the big thing, biggest thing in broadcasting one way or the other. And if it got to come down to a photo finish, let this be the photograph. So, yes, I am not afraid of it. Nope, not at all. And I also used to love when people would meet me for the first time and they'd be like, oh, so you're Joshua Johnson. Oh, my God. I didn't think you were so tall. Like they just didn't know what to say. And I got a lot of comedy out of that. So, yes, yes. Let's talk about Lloyd Austin. He spoke today at the Pentagon after a pretty remarkable breach of security. And thankfully today he did not walk away from what happened. You may remember that at the beginning of the year, reports began to surface that Lloyd Austin was not on the job and that there was a gap in terms of the continuity of his status as the Secretary of Defense. No one really knew where he was. Turns out he was at Walter Reed Army National Medical Center, which is just outside of Washington, D.C., like literally right over the line in Bethesda, Maryland, being treated for prostate cancer. He apologized today for keeping that a secret. He referred to it as a gut punch in terms of what happened to him. He said that he at no time left the Department of Defense out of control, that it was always being handled. He handed off various duties, and he says that he never told anyone to keep his cancer diagnosis, his treatment, or his absence a secret. But he did concede that he wasn't transparent enough in the way that he handled this. He says that he did tell President Biden that he was sorry. He also said he was sorry during today's press conference and says that the president was very warm and gracious about accepting that apology. I want to play you a piece of what Lloyd Austin, of what Secretary Austin said today, where he talks about what he went through and, and the apology and also sends a message, particularly because the incidence of cancers like prostate cancer is higher among blacks 
than it is among whites. Here is part of what Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said today. On 22nd December, I had a minimally invasive procedure to cure me of my recently diagnosed prostate cancer. And then I hit some bad luck during what is usually a pretty easy recovery. On January 1st, I felt severe leg pain and, and pain in the abdomen and hip. And that evening, an ambulance took me to Walter Reed. The doctors found that I had several issues that needed treatment, including a bladder infection and abdominal problems. On January 2nd, I was also experiencing fever and chills and shallow breathing. The medical staff decided to transfer me to the critical care unit for several days for, for closer monitoring and better uh, team care by my doctors. And the deputy secretary assumed the functions and duties of my office, which happens when necessary. Her senior staff, my senior staff, and the joint staff were notified of this through our regular email notification procedures. And I never directed anyone to keep my January hospitalization from the White House. On January 5th, I resumed my functions and duties as secretary from the hospital. I was functioning, functioning well mentally, but not so well physically, and so I stayed at Walter Reed for additional time uh, for additional treatment, including physical therapy for some lingering issues with my leg. I was diagnosed with a highly treatable form of cancer, a pretty common one. One in eight American men will get prostate cancer. One in six black men will get it. And so I'm here with a clear message to other men, especially older men. Get screened, get your regular checkups. Prostate cancer has a glass jaw. If your doctor can spot it, they can treat it and beat it. And the side effects that I experienced are highly, highly unusual. So you can count on me to set a better example on this issue today and for the rest of my life. That was Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin speaking today about his fight against prostate cancer. Thankfully, he is doing okay. And I also really appreciate him saying two things. One, that the side effects he experienced were quite unusual. And two, that prostate cancer, prostate cancer has, in his words, a glass jaw and that it can be knocked out. I think part of what has, and that just reminded me of another link I should have pulled up. I will pull that up in a second. Part of what has made cancer so hard to fight is just the word itself. I think when we talk about it, it sort of frightens people out of being able to have the conversation because it just kind of clamps down on you and, and is so paralytic that no one wants to hear it. But it's good to hear Defense Secretary Austin kind of ease some of that discomfort. Um, there was a piece in the Wall Street Journal, which I just pulled up about the effort among some doctors to rename the lowest risk form of prostate cancer because of a few reasons. One, it would ease the likelihood of overly aggressive treatments that can be treated in a variety of ways. And also because the C word just freaks some people out, not just the men who have prostate cancer, but also their families and sometimes even their doctors from talking about it, and that there are options besides a prostatectomy, besides removing the prostate. There are 
radiation treatments. There is androgen deprivation therapy. There is just surveillance, just keeping an eye on it. And that there are options in terms of the way that, as you know, there's a chart in this in this piece in terms of how treatment approaches have changed over the last number of years, that the instance of people who just have their prostate cancer surveilled, let me see if I can make this chart any larger, who have had their, too large, who have had their prostate cancer surveilled rather than removed through a prostatectomy has increased. So fewer people are having the surgeries, more people are having treatments like androgen deprivation, or just surveillance, and it doesn't have to bring up so much fear as it normally does. So I'm glad that Defense Secretary Austin said what he said, and I think it's important for people to kind of get that it doesn't necessarily have to be the you know some kind of major medical procedure, or let's be real, something that makes you feel emasculated as a man. I think we've done a better job as men of talking about prostate health, we have not done as good a job of talking about sexual health in general. The number of jokes that are still told about going to the doctor and getting a checkup and the doctor says, bend over and puts on a glove and goes, and like the joke about, you're going to put your finger where? Like that, (laughs) that's gone kind of far. Is it funny? Yes. But does it also get in the way of men being able to talk about? Yes, it's getting in the way. So I think we haven't done a good enough job of combining the funny with the real conversation. Not necessarily the serious conversation about prostate health, but just being able to say like, yes, it's funny. Yes, we can laugh at it, but let's not take ourselves too seriously. Like this is your health. Your health is super important. But if laughing through it makes it easier to deal with, then laugh your ass off. Like it doesn't matter. Just go get checked, right? Just go get checked. Your The women in our lives have had a much more effective conversation about breast cancer than men have had about either prostate or colorectal cancer. It's still not a very effective conversation, but many of our lives have been affected by it. Many of us have been scanned. I've been screened. Everything was fine. Nothing was found. There was a very small, totally benign polyp that was found. They removed it and it was, it was over with. That was the story I told you about propofol, about being anesthetized. And I was in mid-sentence and then all of us, I was out. That, it's, it really is better than having cancer. Getting screened for it and catching it is better than getting it and better than dying from it. And men have not done a very good job of, of talking about it, even if it's just, you know, even if it's just in jest. There was a report that came out today from the World Health Organization about the nature of the world's fights against cancer, not just prostate cancer. They note that there is a growing global burden for cancer services and that ahead of World Cancer Day, they have decided to update their results in terms of how the world is doing in its fights against cancer. Now, there are disproportionate impacts. If you live in a wealthier nation versus a less wealthy nation, you're going to have a different experience of dealing with cancer, which I think is not a shock. But the results, I think, are kind of kind of illuminating. And these are based on 2022 data, which is the most recent available data from around the world compared more or less apples to apples. So what the World Health Organization found in terms of the fight on cancer is 
as follows. And this is these are survey results on the global burden of cancer. And then also they broke down how 115 countries are doing and where the gaps are in terms of their health coverage of cancer. So how are we doing around the world in fighting cancer? Well, as of 2022, the World Health Organization says there were an estimated 20 million new cancer cases and 9.7 million deaths. About 53.5 million people, as of 2022, were alive five years after diagnosis. More than 53 million, we're talking around the world. About one in five people will develop can- after being diagnosed. About one in five people will develop cancer in their lifetime. Slightly more for men. One in nine men, one in 12 women die from the disease. Beyond that, the major types of cancer, prostate cancer is not among them. Major types of cancer as of 2022, lung cancer is the most commonly occurring. That's just over 12% of all new cases. Then female breast cancer, they note female because men can still get cancer in their breast tissue or pectoral tissue, I guess we would call it because we're men, so they're pecs. Female breast cancer ranks second, followed by colorectal cancer, which ranks third. Prostate cancer is fourth. About one and a half million cases, new cases, that's about 7% of all cancers around the world, and behind that is stomach cancer. That's in terms of new cases. In terms of fatalities, lung cancer was the leading cause of cancer deaths around the world. Just under one in five total cancer deaths are from lung cancer, followed by colorectal cancer, that's just under one in 10 deaths, then liver cancer, breast cancer, and stomach cancer. So note the discrepancy, female breast cancer is the second most commonly diagnosed, but far less likely to be deadly in terms of the ranking, which is fabulous news because breast cancer still remains quite problematic. And the reemergence of lung cancer in some parts of the world is probably related to the fact that we're still using tobacco. Asia in particular has issues with lung cancer. Perhaps not surprisingly, there are different cancers for men and women. Women, the most commonly diagnosed is breast cancer. For men, it's most commonly lung cancer. And breast cancer was the most common cancer in women in the overwhelming majority of countries. Prostate cancer for men. We were talking about what Lloyd Austin goes through, has gone through. Prostate and colorectal cancers were second and third most common. Liver and colorectal were second and third most common for deaths. So it's primarily lung cancer all the way around the world. It's primarily lung cancer. Cervical cancer among women, that is the eighth most commonly occurring cancer, ninth leading cause of death. Although worth noting that some of the medications for cervical cancer or some of the the treatment regimens are useful for both men and women. Gardasil, which is a medication that prevents HPV, has also been found to be effective in men at preventing certain forms of anal and colorectal cancer. I've had Gardasil. I am gay, I am a man who has sex with men, and so that puts us at a different risk for anal and colorectal cancers, and a significant number of men who have sex with men have gotten the Gardasil vaccine to prevent colorectal cancer in gay men, or in men who have sex with men. I know I'm using both of these terms. The reason I use them both, in case it's not clear, is that medical researchers, when they're talking about the incidence of disease, they have over time learned to link the incidence of disease to behavior rather than identity. Just because you identify as gay 
doesn't necessarily mean that your sex life is the same as other gay men. There are a number of reasons why men have sex with men. Some of them because they're incarcerated. They could be adult performers. They could be bisexual. They could be experimenting. They could, there is an array of different reasons. So rather than talk about identity, it allows for anyone who is engaged in certain kinds of behavior to be included, to screen themselves, to get checked, to get taken care of. So some of the overlap in this has to do with the evolution and how we talk about all of these different things. And it makes it makes a significant difference in terms of how we deal with these cancers and how we talk about them in general. Inequity certainly has to do with national wealth, what the World Health Organization calls the Human Development Index. In countries with a high HDI, one out of 12 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetime. Far fewer will die from it. In countries with a low Human Development Index, only one in 27 gets diagnosed, but a higher incidence of number will, incidence of women will die from it. So women in lower HDI countries, that term is so wonky, but in less developed countries, let's just say, less affluent countries, they are significantly less likely, half as likely to be diagnosed, but more likely to die. Partly because they are diagnosed less often and also because they just don't have the same access to care. I think the nice thing about this, in a way, is that the factors that can prevent this, that can prevent cancers from expanding, are very much within our control. They're almost completely within our control. Things like smoking, reducing the incidence of smoking would make a world of difference in fighting these cancers. Improving environmental health would make an enormous difference. Fighting obesity would make an enormous difference. I think they mentioned this, here it is. Tobacco, alcohol, and obesity, key factors behind the increasing incidence of cancer. Air pollution still a key driver of environmental risk factors. So the nice thing about the fight against cancer is that many of the factors behind it, we can control them. They are largely preventable. You can stop smoking. You can take better care of your health. You can limit alcohol consumption. We can improve the environmental health. These things are quite difficult, particularly kicking tobacco. Tobacco is a really, really hard habit to break. And if you or someone you know has struggled to stop smoking, like it's hard. There, there was a study that came out years and years ago, back when I was still in the truth campaign, that asked people who had smoked cigarettes and also used heroin, which one was easier to kick? Heroin was easier. I think partly because heroin is not socially acceptable and it's easier to be like, yeah, I'm not gonna do that anymore. Cigarettes didn't have quite the same social stigma. So I, I get it. I get why it is so very, very difficult to do. And it doesn't make it, doesn't make it easy. Also, on top of that, one of the factors has to do with the way that cigarettes have been marketed over time. There is an interesting piece that dropped today from NPR about the history of cigarette smoking among African Americans. And... You may know that among African-Americans, one kind of cigarette in particular has been marketed to us for a long, long time, and that's menthol cigarettes. They have been sponsors of jazz festivals 
and lots of commercials and and ads that you would see in in Ebony magazine with you know a soul sister who's got a a, a righteous afro and she's you know they're, they're let me expand this image so you can see it more clearly if I can't there we go with you know there's an advertisement for the cool jazz festival I remember seeing those ads you know in New York or an ad for Kent Methol the Together Smoke. Refreshing menthol, micro night filter too. And so he's holding this this cigarette in his hand, and she looks very happy. Never mind that that tobacco increases the likelihood of impotence. None of that is gonna matter to the soul brother with the beautiful soul sister with the nine inch afro holding a cool menthol cigarette. Like that's the way that they got us for a lot of years. So it is no surprise that that was. That was one of the things that kind of hooks a lot of African Americans. They speak in this piece to a filmmaker named Lincoln Mondi, who did a documentary about the marketing of menthol cigarettes to African Americans. It's called Black Lives, Black Lungs. It is online. It was a project of the Truth Initiative, which is the anti-tobacco campaign um, that was funded by the money from the tobacco settlement, the master settlement agreement with the tobacco industry. And so this documentary is available online. You can, I'm just, I'm looking at it on YouTube right now, is a project to lay out the history of how African-Americans were targeted with this kind of advertising. So one of the things that makes this so relevant is that the quality of our conversation about black history and black culture has expanded to an awareness of the kind of unseen levers that are pulled in the background that affect us in ways we don't even know. And I think this is very smart. It's a much more effective way to get people to quit. It's a much more effective way to get people to even think about what's going on and to use the fight against cancer as something that is empowering not just a fight against something that will disempower you or kill you. It's not just that. It's also an effort to break legacy cycles of racism, of environmental and biomedical racism, and economic racism that said, we'll give this deadly product to those people, right? We will reserve this crappy housing that they can't get loans for, for those people. We'll put those failing schools with not enough funding for those people. If you're tired of being those people, then maybe the fight against tobacco is something you should know about because you are a direct target of it. And the evidence is very clear. I think that it may seem like, oh, well, they should just want to quit smoking because of their health. Maybe, but if it's not enough, you're gonna be mad because it's not enough or you're gonna find a better option. This is a much more effective option. I have seen it work from having worked with the Truth Campaign and for the Truth Campaign years ago, decades ago. That works. No one likes to feel like they're being played for a fool or treated like they're stupid or worthless. And that is literally what happens when you say, oh, give those cigarettes to those people. It doesn't kind of get much worse than that. It really doesn't get much worse than that. So I'm glad that Secretary Austin is doing well. There's one other health story I did want to get to in just one second. But first, let me catch back up on the chat. I can see y'all are having a good time. Um, let me get to Ten Unda, who's in YouTube. Hello, I don't think I've seen you in the chat yet. Welcome, glad you're here. Ten Unda wrote on, and I hope I'm, Ten Unda, excuse me, Ten Unda wrote, I, I never know if it's somebody's last name 
or whether it is a nickname. So if I'm mispronouncing it, I, I very much apologize. But they wrote on YouTube, I feel that in a normal world, Lloyd Austin's decision to keep his surgery and incapacity secret in the midst of hot global crises would be disqualifying. But if the GOP wants to have a 91-time indictee slash rapist as their nominee for actual president, what even matters anymore? I hear you on that, and I, I understand 91 time is, is a bit of hyperbole. He's not been indicted that much, I don't think, although I haven't looked at the papers in the last 20 minutes. But yes, I hear you. And in terms of Lloyd Austin, they asked him about that today. I forget which reporter it was, but one of the reporters in the Pentagon briefing today asked, like, if anyone else did this, you would, you would demand their resignation. Like, shouldn't that standard apply to you? And Secretary Austin kind of danced around the question. He didn't really answer it. But you're right. If it was anyone else, it would be disqualifying. And it would be remarkably problematic because you cannot have the Department of Defense without leadership. Now, Secretary Austin says it was never without leadership. There was always somebody in charge. There were people within the agency who knew directly that he was in the hospital. So... He claims that that was never a risk. The problem is he wasn't more transparent about what was happening behind the scenes, particularly to the press, to the public, to the president, that that was a missed opportunity and that was the thing that went wrong. But I hear you in terms of that, in terms of the scope of it overall. I see what Philip wrote on the chat in YouTube. Philip writes, it was not a smart choice, but wonder if the natural feelings and emotions caused him to hold back. I can understand that. Not a cause for a requirement to resign, though. I can relate in some ways. He apologized, so I'm okay to move on. I hear you on that, and I think the president is probably okay with him moving on as well. Not the least of which reason being, as we talked about yesterday, there is another member of the cabinet who is also on the hot seat, and that's Alejandro Mayorkas, the Secretary of Homeland Security. Yesterday, the House Homeland Security Committee voted after a marathon meet, like a 13-hour meeting, and after enormous partisan swiping back and forth, voted along party lines to send articles of impeachment to the full house. It is very likely that the full house will approve them, but it is almost impossible, I think, for the Senate to convict Secretary Mayorkas, partly because it's, it is still democratically controlled, and even if a trial does take place, which I presume they have to have an impeachment trial in the Senate if articles of impeachment are sent up, that's not discretionary. But I don't think it's going to go very far. Uh, Republicans will probably make the trial last as long as possible, but we will see. Holly wrote on YouTube, this feels like a belated level of the transparency His Majesty Charles III recently showed regarding his own prostate issues. Yes, it was a big difference, Holly, and you're right in bringing that up. I'm, I'm, I don't know why I didn't think of that. Thank you for bringing that up. That, for those of you who don't, who don't know, King Charles III just was treated for his prostate cancer. Uh, Camilla took a much more forward role. I saw a piece in, I think it was BBC News, about how uh, she has really stepped up and been very, very, very focused on making sure that all the trains keep running on time in his absence. He is back. They say he's fine. He's recovering well. But yes, I think that relationship is a rather different one, considering the kind of emotional relationship that the British people have to the monarchy. I would be amazed if they didn't talk about that, partly because if he didn't tell it, it'd end up in a tabloid. So of course he's got to say something because he wants to be the one to drive that narrative. He doesn't want to be the one who has other people kind of 
you know, outing him as having been treated for prostate cancer uh, would be that would be ugly. That would get really weird. But yes, I think that kind of transparency makes a lot, a lot, lot, lot more, a lot more sense. Sarah, I appreciate you sharing your story. Uh, Sarah wrote on YouTube, my dad did radioactive seeds. He also did the hormone therapy and my mom laughed so hard at his hot flashes. I think that is, that is very cute. Sarah also does note that he died many years later of emphysema. Sorry to hear about that, but I appreciate you sharing the story. And I'm glad that they were able to have some levity about it. I think the, uh, the, the phenomenon of cancer comedy, I find really interesting, whether it's Tignataro or whomever, just kind of being able to joke about, about that is probably super healthy to try to make it not so frightening to talk about. Um, yeah, I think that's, I think that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. I appreciate all y'all sharing these stories. There is one more aspect of this that I want to get to when we come back. Actually, there are a few things I want to get to. There's one other health story that I didn't drop in. It's kind of a brief little mention, but I want to get to it, particularly since we've talked a bit about sexual health on the program recently. There is an alarming rise in one particular STI that can be treated in a relatively new, very effective way. I'll get to that in just one second. There's also a little bit of news that's broken just within the last half hour or so regarding the fight against Hamas and a statement from the UK's top diplomat over the possibility of a two-state solution. This is a statement at this point, so I don't want to dive into it too hard, but we will get to that in just a minute. Also, we will talk about higher education, the fight about DEI at Harvard and Penn and MIT and other elite universities. There are a bunch of little updates that are worth noting. I'll give you one of those a little bit later on. And I did find the clip about this black inventor. It's Black History Month, so we might as well talk about it now, but I can talk about it when I want to. It's Black History Month year round, damn it. But you have to see what this inventor built. It is so cool. I cannot wait to show you. Stick around. Welcome back. Before we keep going, I just wanted to note one of the comments from further down, a few more of the comments from further down, actually. I see Skylar the writer, with regard to our conversation on cancer, writes, there's an anime called Cells at Work that had a great story arc about cancer. The show follows a blood cell as she encounters different issues in the body. Great way to teach kids and adults. That sounds really interesting. Cells at Work. I've never heard of that show before. Not that I'm the biggest anime fan, but that's really interesting. I will, uh, or heard of that story. I've, uh, I'm gonna have to check that out. Sells at work. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us. I also appreciate that Tenando amended the original comment and said they should have said 91 felony counts, not individual indictments. I greatly appreciate the correction. Thank you very, very much for putting a finer point on that. You're welcome here anytime. I really, really, really appreciate that. Nora wrote, I picked up HPV working with gay men at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic before universal precautions were even thought of. Uh, Nora also notes, anal cancer was my first cancer. There's lots of humor about that. 
And then Sarah says, oh, Nora, what a pain in the... And then Nora says, that's usually the opening line. Oh, you two. You two. I I can always count on the two of you to keep class lively. But thank you all for sharing your your comments and your stories. I really appreciate that. Uh, And I should note, by the way, you know, you put it in the chat, and obviously you know it's it's out there. I would never ask or require that anybody share something super personal, and I'll always try to be a good steward of your stories if you choose to share them. But just do be mindful that the chat lives on in YouTube or Facebook or Twitch or wherever you share it, and that other people are going to have access to something that could be quite personal. So just bear it in mind if that's something that you do decide to share. I want to close the loop on this health segment of the program, and then we will keep moving. I mentioned that there is another health issue that's worth us talking about, and I don't want to linger on it, but I did want to hit on it very briefly. The CDC recently released a report about the incidence of some STIs in this country, and they've noted that the current incidence of syphilis cases is at its highest level since the 1950s in the United States. This is according to the CDC. I am looking at an article from NPR News that from 28 to 2022, syphilis cases increased by nearly 80%, to more than 207,000 cases. It increased across age groups, including newborns, and across all regions of the country. As of 2022, 3,755 cases of babies born with syphilis in the U.S. were reported. 3,755. In the last decade, that is a 937% increase. And according to the CDC, it's largely because of the old culprit, racial and ethnic minorities being affected by long-standing social inequities. This is why, by the way, and we're going to talk about DEI in a second, If DEI is such a terrible thing, then what is your strategy for dealing with systemic inequities? How do you address them unless we talk about them? And how do you address them unless the people who are affected by them talk about them as directly and as candidly as possible? I don't think that DEI is the only solution to these problems, right? Dr. King didn't have DEI programs and he still made an enormous difference on the world. But if that's kind of the state of the art right now and you don't like it, then what's your solution to deal with these problems as directly as possible? That's what kind of I'm struggling with, with the argument against DEI programs. Not that DEI is so holy and noble and perfect, but if not that, then what? It's one of the oldest rules of sales. Always give people a choice between something and something, never between something and nothing. So if the choice is between DEI or nothing, The answer is no, but what is the other something that we could do to address systemic inequities, institutional racism, environmental justice issues, hate crimes, the rise of white nationalism, anti-Semitism, transphobia? What's your answer? If not that, then what? You ain't got one, do you? Well, then why do you expect people to stop complaining about the demise of these programs when you're trying to create a vacuum where someone was at least trying to do something, effective or not. Iterate. Don't eliminate. Give me something to work with. Anyway, back to syphilis. 
Various reasons for the increase. Why are these cases going up? Increases in substance abuse tied to risky sexual behavior. Decreases in condom use. We'll come back to that in a second. Ongoing social and economic conditions and reduction in STI infection services at the state and local level. Also, stigma surrounding STIs can prevent people from seeking care. That one piece, the decrease in condom use, that's, I think, significant for a couple of different reasons. One of which is that because of the rise in different kinds of treatments for HIV, a growing number of men who have sex with men have stopped using condoms almost altogether because AIDS medications, HIV medications, are amazingly effective at suppressing the virus down to the level of being undetectable in the blood. And we now know that if HIV is undetectable, it's untransmittable. You cannot pass HIV except maybe in a one in a 10 million case if we cannot measure it in your blood. Doesn't mean you're quote unquote cured, but it means you cannot transmit the virus. Furthermore, if you are on a regimen called PrEP, which is treatment for HIV negative people to block HIV, the combination of those two things is as close to perfectly effective as you can get in stopping the spread of HIV. So I suspect that among some people, particularly men who have sex with men, the decision to stop using condoms has been very purposeful because of the advances in fighting HIV. The problem is that PrEP and antiretroviral therapy only work on HIV. They don't work on anything else. So what do you do? Well, there is another regimen that I think people need to know about. It's called doxypep. Doxypep is very effective, and it is also becoming more popular among men who have sex with men, but also among other communities. It is a regimen where you take doxycycline as a way to prevent against a number of common STIs, including particularly syphilis, chlamydia, and gonorrhea. PEP stands for post-exposure prophylaxis. If you think that you have had unprotected sex with someone who's HIV positive, your doctor may, and you are negative, your doctor may prescribe you certain kinds of HIV medications very quickly to block HIV from taking root in your immune system. That's called PEP, post-exposure prophylaxis. PEP works. This is a form of PEP using doxycycline to do much the same thing. If you have an unprotected sexual encounter without a physical barrier anyway, you can take doxypep within 72 hours of that sexual encounter, preferably 24 hours, but no later than 72. Obviously, the sooner the better. And it's you're taking a very common antibiotic called doxycycline, which is effective against gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis. It's not perfectly effective. It's not as effective, say, as PrEP against HIV, but it is quite effective. Doxypep is not aimed at everybody. It's mostly aimed at transgender women, men who have sex with men, and particularly those who have had at least one of those STIs in the past 12 months. If you have not had a recent STI, but you do have multiple sexual partners, doxypep is also recommended. Cisgender heterosexual men at risk of STIs can also take doxypep, but the science behind this and PrEP are mostly focused on men who have sex with men because those are where there are unique nexuses of STI infection. 
There are plenty of other details in terms of how doxypep works and when you should take it and what other medications you should take it next to and when to have food and when to drink water and you know taking it standing up and all those other kinds of various details around doxypep. But it's one dose as soon as possible. It's two pills or one larger pill of 200 milligrams. And that thing I said about standing up, that is actually true. In doxycycline treatments, they say you should not lie down for 30 minutes after taking the pills. I do not know why. Do not ask me why. Does it work? In a number of studies, according to UC San Francisco, doxypep reduced the risk of gonorrhea by about 55 or 60%, decreased the chances of developing chlamydia and syphilis by at least 80%. So these are very effective. And in many services, including some online services, doxypep is free. But often, it is very inexpensive. And many insurance plans nowadays will cover it because it's just an antibiotic. It's a very mainstream, well-known, very common antibiotic. So something else to consider, the instance of gonorrhea, chlamydia, and especially syphilis. These cases are on the rise. There is no need to be a victim of these. There is no need to be ashamed of these. There is no reason to allow this to proliferate. There is always a concern of antibiotic resistant bacteria, always. So I'm not saying this is a solution to dealing with these STIs. That is always something to be watched. But the ability to suppress these infections, especially cases that are easy to prevent, I would take that over dealing with the effects of these STIs any day. So doxypep, D-O-X-Y dash P-E-P. Talk to your doctor. Listen to the doctor's advice. Please don't take anything I say as medical advice. Talk to your doctor about this. Talk to a healthcare professional about this before you decide if it is right for you. All right, I'm gonna talk about DEI in just a second. I do just want to note one other story that has moved just within the last hour that I think is significant for you and I to know about regarding the war in Israel and the fight against Hamas. The Associated Press spoke to the top diplomat in Britain about the possibility of a ceasefire and the future of a Palestinian state and peace between Israelis and Palestinians and how a peace deal might affect that. Well, according to what they told the AP, the UK might be willing to recognize the existence of a Palestinian state before there is a peace deal with Israel. That's a huge deal, that these are no longer a two-step process. The person they spoke to is this gentleman, David Cameron, who is the UK's foreign secretary. He had previously been the prime minister of the UK before Boris Johnson got the seat, and now Rishi Sunak is in the seat. And David Cameron is visiting Lebanon today said that they could not recognize a Palestinian state while Hamas was still in Gaza. But if Hamas was out and negotiations between Israelis and Palestinian leaders were going on, that that could be the beginning of the UK recognizing a Palestinian state after a ceasefire, after Hamas is out, but before a so-called two-state solution would happen. Now, 
that would take some time. And he makes it clear that it, quote, can't come at the start of the process, but it doesn't have to be the very end of the process, unquote. I think this is huge. This is gigantic. It moves us to what I think has been a huge open gap, just a gaping hole in this peace process, which is the interim step. Everybody is talking about two-state solution or no two-state solution or like, what does it look like in the future? But very few people have been willing to talk about what step one might look like, or even step two or step three. If step one is ceasefire in Gaza, no more Hamas, okay, fine, that's hard enough. But then what is the first step after that look like? Like, what is the first step of peace look like, as opposed to just the last step of war? You see what I'm saying? That's, that's the hard part. Now, as the AP rightly notes, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, has very much opposed creating a Palestinian state after the war. So the idea of a two-state solution, to be clear, that is the rest of the world suggesting it, urging it to Israel. The Israeli prime minister has made it very clear he is not for that. Other Israelis may be. Other Israeli lawmakers may be. But the current prime minister has taken some pride in preventing that and indeed in fighting back against that. So that's another impediment. But the UK is a major ally of Israel, just like the US is a major ally of Israel. And again, David Cameron's remarks are contingent upon Hamas getting out or being defeated. There's also the matter of hostages. There's a nascent deal to negotiate hostages being released. The US seems optimistic that that can go forward, but that would be a huge step, a huge step forward. So Prime Minister, or excuse me, Foreign Secretary, former UK Prime Minister David Cameron, intimates that there might be an interim step before a all-out peace deal between the Israelis and the Palestinians that would at least allow some kind of recognition of some kind on the world stage. I think that would be kind of remarkable. I don't see how Netanyahu's going to let this move forward. But then again, who knows what Netanyahu's political future is going to be like after this war? Lots of Israelis have made it clear, okay, as soon as the war is over, you need to be over too. So I don't know that that is necessarily an impediment to this happening, but it just means it's not going to happen right away. But watch this space. Just thought I'd pass that on as the diplomatic push to try to move all of this forward. Let's talk about higher education and the fight over diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. We've been talking about that a lot on this program. It's a fascinating issue. I just find it kind of endlessly fascinating. But it's also one of those things that I think is easy to ignore after the whole Harvard kerfuffle died down. You'll remember that back in December, there was that hearing where the presidents of Harvard, the University of Pennsylvania, and MIT testified before a House committee. At the time, you had Claudine Gay, who was the president of Harvard University. She has since resigned. You had Liz McGill, who was the president of Penn, and Sally Kornbluth, who was the president of MIT, still for now, who testified about anti-Semitism, excuse me, testified about anti-Semitism on college campuses. That did not go well. There was a very testy exchange between Claudine Gay and 
Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik of New York that went hyper viral, mostly because of Claudine Gay's inability to just give straight answers to what should have been combative, but more or less easy to answer yes or no questions. That push has been fueled not purely by the students. Let's just be clear. This is not an organic student-led effort. This has been led by conservative outside commentators, conservative activist journalists who have made no secret of their actions, including Christopher Rufo and others, and billionaire alumni. This is not a fight of the rank and file. You have billionaire alumni like Bill Ackman, who went to Harvard, Mark Rowan, who's a major donor at Penn, who are pushing these changes. Add to that accusations of plagiarism that befell Claudine Gay, which she addressed, which she the university has already taken steps to, uh, to deal with, none of which had to do with stealing ideas, but more had to do with citations, poor quotations, putting materials into her work that didn't have the proper attribution. So it wasn't necessarily like she passed off the entirety of someone else's work as her own. It wasn't quite that dire. Bill Ackman's wife, Neri Oxman, also got pinched for plagiarism for some of her work when she was at MIT. That's all background. What's happened since? Oh my God, so much. I probably should have done this update like a week and a half ago, but here we are because there's been that much going on. I don't even know what order to put all this in. So we just go and dive into it. First of all, let's talk about the University of Pennsylvania in one of my favorite cities, Philadelphia. Penn, according to a piece from the New York Times, has been dealing with the ongoing impact of the scandals following that House hearing and over the impact of anti-Semitism on campus. Last week, a number of professors at Penn staged a rally on campus targeting a private equity billionaire named Mark Rowan. He is an alumnus of Penn, a major donor of the university, of the kind that universities tend to ask for lots of sums of money from. He was one of the people who pushed very hard against the former president, Elizabeth McGill, and led to her resigning in December. Sidebar, before I keep going, I should note that these two, Liz McGill and Claudine Gay, only resigned as the president's of the university. They didn't step down from the university overall. They went back to being professors. Claudine Gay is a professor of African American studies and history, and I believe Liz McGill is a law professor, I think, but neither of them actually quit the institution. They just stepped down from the role of the presidency. It's also not entirely unusual for faculty to become the presidents of universities and then go back. I mean, it happens uh, Nicholas Dirks, who used to be the chancellor of UC Berkeley, went back to being a professor at UC Berkeley after he was the chancellor. Uh, and UC Berkeley, by the way, has a president of the 10 campus system. And then each campus, UC Berkeley, UCLA, UC San Francisco, has a chancellor. So that's why I said chancellor versus president. But that kind of a relationship is not unusual. So it's not weird for a professor to become the president and then go back to being the professor. Or for a university president somewhere else to become the president of a different university and then become a professor at that same school after their presidency is over. That's not at all unheard of. It's actually quite common. So, Mr. Rowan, he's the guy who also, if you remember on this show, we talked about this, they put together this document called Moving Forward, which was viewed as kind of a pullback from some of the ongoing 
arguably more progressive educational values at the University of Pennsylvania and reshifted away from some of those tenets. According to the Times, the protest was about 100 people at a time when folks were hoping that they could kind of move beyond some of the drama that had kicked up after the controversies over anti-Semitism on campus. The core of this argument, both Penn and Harvard and elsewhere, is that the progressive mentality of a lot of these elite schools has created an environment that not only suppresses more conservative voices, but is unnecessarily timid at fighting back against things like anti-Semitism, or even that allows it to proliferate, not even just for fear of, of pushing back against it. Whether or not that's true, I don't know, because I'm not on these campuses, but that is part of the underpinning of it. Penn, however, is also facing a lawsuit brought by some of its students. According to the Times, the university is a defendant in a lawsuit filed by Jewish students, but partly financed by unnamed donors. So there's a lot of bigger money there. State Republican lawmakers in Pennsylvania have threatened to withhold $31 million for Penn's veterinary medicine program. It's Penn's only state funding, but Penn's veterinary medicine program is a big deal. It's, one of, it's probably the preeminence in the country, if not one of them. And there was also a fundraiser funded partly by two Penn alumni, Bill Rowan and Ronald Lauder of the Estee Lauder fortune for the reelection of a congresswoman named Virginia Fox, a Republican from North Carolina. Virginia Fox is on a House committee that's investigating universities over anti-Semitism. So this has run deep and has turned into a political effort that is bigger than just these schools. There's also, as the Times article notes, an investigation by the House Ways and Means Committee questioning whether if a university doesn't take sufficient action against anti-Semitism, you can take away their nonprofit status altogether. So this would target Penn, Harvard, MIT, also Cornell, as the Times write-up noted. So that is one piece of this. There's the big billionaire money that has been coming after big universities along this line. Another billionaire regarding Harvard, Ken Griffin, who has said, according to the Harvard Crimson, which is the student newspaper, an excellent student newspaper, that he is going to stop donating to Harvard over all of this, at least for the time being. He just gave, a year ago, a huge gift of $300 million to Harvard's Faculty of Arts and Sciences. Ken Griffin was speaking at a conference in Miami, didn't say that he'll never give money again, but said he's going to stop. While he was at the conference, he said, according to the Harvard Crimson, quote, I'd like that, meaning the state of affairs at Harvard, to change. And I've made that clear to members of the corporate board. But until Harvard makes it very clear that they're going to resume their role as educating young American men and women to be leaders, to be problem solvers, to take on difficult issues, I'm not interested in supporting the institution, unquote. He also referred to Harvard students as, quote, whiny snowflakes. Okay, now I'm confused. Because he said until they resume their role as educating young American women to take on difficult issues. So how does fighting DEI do that? I'm not clear on that causal connection. I understand the argument that says 
we focus too much on ideological issues and not enough on core academics. Okay, fine. But I don't think that anyone who really looks at Harvard with a, a, a common sense eye thinks that Harvard graduates get ahead in life because they're so much better educated as opposed to them being so much better connected. Let's just be real. Tom Cotton, who's a senator from Arkansas, a Republican senator, in the hearing yesterday about social media, kept asking the CEO of TikTok where he's from, and he said, Singapore, and then asked him, have you ever been involved in the Chinese Communist Party? And the guy said, no, I'm from Singapore, and said, have you ever had any dealings with the Chinese? Have you ever applied to be a member of the Chinese Communist Party? And the CEO said, Senator, I'm from, no, I'm from Singapore. Well, what is your perspective on the Tiananmen Square massacre? Tom Cotton went to Harvard. So don't tell me that Harvard kids are just so much smarter than everybody else. Because clearly, Tom Cotton either didn't get it or didn't give a damn, but kept asking this guy, Sho Chu, who's the CEO of TikTok, about his potential Communist Party ties. I mean, he sounded very Joseph McCarthy in all of this. I mean, come on, Senator. Have you no decency at long last? So I understand where it's coming from. I just question whether or not it is actually a matter of education. And I think that there's a larger acknowledgement of just pure influence that happens at Harvard because this is an influence game. I've got billions of dollars. I'm a major donor. I'm an alumnus. I have something to say the school needs to change. Now, do alumni get to do that under normal circumstances? Yes, sure. If you're an alumnus, that's within your prerogative. Sure, you get to do that. But let's not pretend this is all about academics. The rest of us who didn't get to go to schools like Harvard know what the real game is. A university degree is also a credential that confers influence. And if that's not the case, then why is it that all of these people with massive amounts of money and influence are trying to influence the way the university runs? Because that's the game that's played. They know how things get done. We'd be naive not to see it that way. But there have been other developments as well. Besides these fancy private institutions, public schools have also been making some rather significant changes as well. In my home state of Florida, not too long ago, just the, I guess last week, I believe it was, the state of Florida, the state university system, removed sociology as a core course requirement completely. The state also banned funding for DEI initiatives at state colleges and universities. This does not include, for example, the University of Miami, where I went to school, because that is a private university. That would include the University of Florida, Florida International, the University of South Florida, Central Florida, West Florida, North Florida, the historically black college, Florida A&M University, Florida State University. Those are all part of the state university system. So... That means that sociology is no longer a general education core course option. DEI spending is banned altogether. It looked like all but two people supported that measure. And this is an ongoing effort of Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, to crack down 
on DEI in very, very specific ways. It's part of a larger academic crackdown, which, for example, has changed the nature of certain uh, advanced placement courses in African-American history and psychology and sociology and others to step back from certain kinds of conversations about race and diversity and culture. There is also a measure in the U.S. House among a House committee to affect the way that let me just one second, let me just reformat this page. There we go. Oop, too big. Sometimes a font can be too big. There we go. To change the way that federal dollars are given to institutions and to colleges. This is kind of a larger funding issue, but it's all kind of in the mix. It's a bill called the College Cost Reduction Act, passed on a party line vote after a very long uh, committee hearing on Wednesday. Republicans say that it would put colleges on the hook when students struggle to pay back their loans to kind of ease the federal student loan burden. Democrats say that it is, quote, not ready for prime time and that it would have a disproportionate impact on first generation and low income students. That's on its way to the full house. Not clear if it's going to survive the Senate. It does not seem that it will. But this is part of an effort to reauthorize the Higher Education Act. It was last reauthorized 20, 15 years ago, and this would restructure the way that student loans work in a variety of different ways and put a greater emphasis on how students actually do at schools, and it would put more money, more federal funds into colleges and universities that demonstrate that they can help low-income students graduate and help low-income students improve their earning potential over the course of their lives. On paper, that doesn't sound like a terrible idea. The devil would be in the details, but we'll see. Also, we did hear, I mentioned that Claudine Gay, the previous president of Harvard, resigned to return to being just faculty. The Harvard Crimson did speak to the current or the interim president of Harvard University, his name is Alan Garber. He is also a university alumnus, and he referred to what he called a pernicious climate of anti-Semitism on campus, said that he is going to work on tackling that on campus. He said in part to the Crimson, quote, what I have found the most disturbing of all are situations or experiences students describe where they have felt they could not speak in class because there are attacks on Israel or maybe Israelis. They feel unsupported in contradicting them, unquote. So the issue that he is at least pointing to is that students just don't even feel safe speaking in class. And although he believes in free speech, he also wants to talk about what kinds of limitations would be necessary to protect students on campus. He also kind of directly answered or at least alluded to one of the questions that got Claudine Gay bounced from being the president. One of the questions that got problematic during that House hearing about anti-Semitism and attacking Israel. He said to the Harvard Crimson, quote, can anti-Semitic attacks take the form of attacks against Israel? The answer is yes, that is possible, unquote. So that's part of his effort to kind of distance himself from how Claudine Gay handled that. And she did not handle that well at all. But again, Harvard is one of those that's under investigation for its response to anti-Semitism by the House Committee on Education and the Workforce. So it behooves him to speak out very quickly and in a very full-throated way about all of this. The other factor that is worth noting, two other factors I think that are worth noting, and then I will let this go. We noted that 
Claudine Gay faced accusations of plagiarism and that there is a larger effort to kind of use plagiarism as a cudgel to beat higher education into a different shape. Well, now there is another plagiarism accusation against Harvard's top diversity officer, another black woman named Sherry Charleston. This also comes to us from the Harvard Crimson. She is the chief diversity and inclusion officer at Harvard University. And according to the Harvard Crimson, an anonymous complaint filed on Monday alleges 40 different counts of plagiarism in Ms. Charleston's previous work. This was first reported by a conservative publication called the Washington Free Beacon, which was also the publication that helped go after Claudine Gay initially. The issue here is Sherry Charleston's doctoral dissertation at Michigan, which she which included, according to this complaint, 28 various instances of plagiarism, and 12 instances, allegedly, in an article written in the Journal of Negro Education that was co-authored with her husband, LeVar Charleston, and the dean of Michigan State's College of Education, Gerlando Jackson. So the complaints have been filed to those institutions, according to the Washington Free Beacon. And if you look at the way the Harvard Crimson has broken down the complaints, the issue is that there were a number of instances that seem to be lifted rather precisely without attribution. Now, this is the kind of thing that perhaps could be fixed just with quotation marks and with footnotes. But this is the accusation. Now, the fact that the accusation is anonymous does not necessarily negate it. You don't necess- It's not like being in court where you get to face your accuser all the time. Higher ed works differently. So it's not that these accusations have no merit, but the effort to kind of go through everybody's record, particularly people who are in this DEI space, is very concerted. And it's one of the things that Bill Ackman himself has said is going to continue to be a tactic in the work of dismantling DEI. This is not going to go away at all. Like, this is not going to stop. I don't know that it necessarily has to stop because the controversy around DEI could end up making DEI programs stronger and better. It's entirely possible that they could come out of this vastly improved from what they were. But this is going to keep growing. It's not going to stop. It's not going to go away. And I think that some of these complaints need to be dealt with in a way that, like I said, raises the question about how all of this is actually supposed to make schools better, how this is actually supposed to keep kids safer on campus. I just don't see it. I don't see the benefit of any of this. I do see, other than the benefit to the people who are making these accusations, I see how it could potentially benefit them. But for the kids, I I don't know how this is actually going to make kids safer. Remember when this was all just about protecting Jewish kids on campus? Seems like forever ago now. It seems like forever ago now. Let me back up to some of your comments before I wrap it up for the day. I do still want to show you that Black Inventor thing. We will do that. Let me get to... I see, Tenanda, your comment about higher ed. Tenanda writes, universities have kind of made their bed by cultivating and relying on billionaires. But having billionaires dictating to colleges is very dangerous for the rest of us. I hear that. I don't know that higher education 
in most cases, has really ever worked any other way. I mean, a lot of universities are built by benefactors. You know, Jerry Falwell built Liberty University. Leland Stanford gave the land from his ranch to be Stanford University and named it after his son. That's why it's called the Leland Stanford Junior University. It's not named after him, it's named after his son who I believe had just passed, has just died, and so he named it in his son's honor. Uh, Harvard was founded with the wealth of a man named John Harvard, who helped get the university off the ground. So, and even a number of of state universities, you know, we're talking about, you know, this is Black History Month, a number of institutions like Howard University were created, or Wilberforce University, I believe, was a Quaker institution that was created for the education of all kinds of people. But some of the, one of the Seven Sisters universities, I'm trying to remember which one, was always coeducational from the beginning. But even some of those Seven Sisters universities, Sarah Lawrence, Bryn Mawr, Vassar, like those were designed with a very ideological purpose by a, by a group of people who believed that it needed to be met. So I hear you. I just don't know how higher ed evolves in any other way, except in a few cases like state and state universities. Sometimes you have state universities that become amazing things. The University of Virginia, the University of California, amazing networks of institutions. But there's still politics in that too. I don't know how we sever that impact, but I hear you in terms of letting one person who's got a ton of money put energy into these universities. The nice thing is that usually universities have some conversation about how the money is spent and it has to be spent in very discreet ways. So it's not like here's $300 billion to do everything you wanna do. No, I would give you maybe $10 million to work on these kinds of programs and then this sliver of the money you can spend for whatever you want. Those are called restricted funds. And as long as you accept the restrictions, you're probably fine. So as long as universities kind of get what they're signing up for, then maybe they'll be okay. But who knows? Skylar, the writer, notes, what happened to Claudine Gay and Liz McGill is similar to the plot in Sandra O's oh Netflix show, The Chair, about a woman of color who is the first non-white, non-male English chair at a university. Life imitates art. I've heard of that show, but I haven't watched it yet. Skylar goes on to write, oh, so this is what you can do when you send money to your alma mater. Maybe I should stop ignoring those begging phone calls. Girl, I didn't stop ignoring them. And then Skylar writes, there was an immigrant student TikToker who thought they got into the University of Miami, but they didn't realize they had applied to Miami University until they arrived in Ohio. Luckily, they love MU. Oh, boy. I, I well... That sounds like a sitcom. <laughs> it sounds like that should be a sitcom. Goodness gracious. But it, it yeah, it's it's kind of amazing. Um, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Thank you all for your comments on this. I do want to show you one more very cool thing before we go. I think I got to everything I wanted to do today. I have so many tabs open on my computer, Lord Jesus. But I think I got to just about everything I want to get to today. Black History Month, it's always nice to learn about black people doing well. And I want to introduce you to one black people who was doing well. On May 9th, the National Inventors Hall of Fame will induct its new class of honorees. There is a wide array of nominees from one of the women who helped improve Wi-Fi in this country to the guy, posthumously he will be inducted, who invented what we now call a snowmobile. 
Those are among the honorees. The honorees also include this guy. His name is Lanny Smoot, and he works for the Walt Disney Company in Imagineering. He is one of the scientists that helps create the science behind all of the amazing attractions that Walt Disney has put forth over the years. He is going to be inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame. There is one other nominee or one other inductee from the Walt Disney Company. Only one other person from Disney has ever been inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame. Walt Disney. So there will be two Disney inductees, Walt Disney himself and Lanny Smoot, this guy. I watched a video recently of him talking about what kind of has gone on in the work that he's done. I think he is so cool. And I think his latest invention is freaking incredible. Walt Disney was inducted, by the way, for something called the multiplane camera. If you remember in movies like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs or Bambi or Robin Hood or Peter Pan, there were some shots where it seemed like the scenery kind of, this, the shot zoomed in and it gave you a sense of depth, like the layers of the shot were almost moving. Well, they were. A multiplane camera shoots downward through different panes of glass that are painted. And by shooting them one pane at a time, it gives the sense of movement. And it was a technological invention that Walt Disney came up with that allowed animated films to have a sense of depth that they had never had. So Lanny Smoot is gonna be inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame. He is, according to Disney, one of the most prolific black inventors in American history. He has more than 100 patents, more than 100 for his work at Disney and elsewhere. He's worked in theater, he's an electrical engineer, done all kinds of research, and a number of the things that he's worked on, it could be something as simple as the system that makes the eyes of a character more expressive or track differently. 74 of his 100 patents were at the Walt Disney Company where he's worked for the last 25 years. One of his newest projects I find very, very cool, and it's called the Hollow Tile Floor, H-O-L-O, -O, like hologram. I wanna show you a bit of the video of the Hollow Tile Floor. This is just a YouTube video from Disney. I don't think they'll sue me if I play this video. I think they'll like it. But it's on YouTube. I'm gonna fire this up right from YouTube and see if I can show you a bit of the hollow tile floor. I think this is so stinking cool. Watch. Hollow tile floor. Let's do so, it. Yeah, let's go. Come on. So this is the hollow tile. It is. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to do a little demonstration of it. So I can walk on this omnidirectional floor in any direction I want. It will automatically do whatever it needs to have me stay on the floor. And what's amazing about this is multiple people can be on it and all walking independently. They can walk in virtual reality and so many other things. So where are you hoping this tech ends up? You know, imagine a number of people being in a room, being able to be somewhere else collaboratively and moving around, seeing, doing sightseeing. Imagine theatrical stages that might have these uh, embedded in them so that dancers can do amazing moves. Not me, but <laughs> a 
really good dancers. Um, so there are just so many applications for this type of technology, and we don't know yet where that where it'll be used. Well, it's I think that's so cool. <laughs> I think that is the coolest. Oh, that is so cool. Oh, wait, and he's sitting on a, I mean, just like the, the variety of things you could do with something like this, where you can, I, I, I just. I, with you. Ah, my inner science nerd, my inner Star Trek nerd is just like, ah, that's, that's amazing. And what a cool thing that you can have. See, this is, this is where I think like, this is where I think Black History Month is, is so cool. And all these heritage months, it's not just the story of our struggle and of our pain. It's the story of our potential and of our progress. I think a lot of people who, for example, hate DEI efforts, hate them because they don't like how the story of our past makes them feel. That's the whole crux of Florida's ban on a lot of education about race, is that, and also on critical race theory, which isn't taught in grade schools anyway, but the argument that was made is that kids should not be made to feel bad or guilty because of their race in light of the past. First of all, how do you legislate a child's feelings? Children are little heaps of hormones whose feelings are all over the place on a regular day. So the idea that anyone can legislate how a kid thinks or feels is asinine. My mother was a public school teacher for decades. Ask her how easy it is to get a kid to calm down and sit quietly, let alone to feel what you want them to feel. Jackass. But beyond that, it's also based on this mistaken idea that the story of race in America is just a story about pain. That it's just a story about the bad guys and the people they victimized. And it denies black people our heroes. Lanny Smoot's a hero. He is one of these people who is able to do something that we were told hundreds of years ago we were incapable of doing. And he's doing it now in an environment that is probably one of the most diversity-minded companies on the planet, the Walt Disney Company. And he's doing cool stuff. And he's going to be recognized for this. Think about it. The only other inductee behind Lanny Smoot was Walt Disney himself. That is the highest watermark of the whole company, is what Walt would do. That's black history also. It's not just the story of slavery. It's the ingenuity of slaves to invent slave spirituals to actually give coded messages about the navigation to get out of a plantation and to get to freedom. That's black history as well. It's all of it. All of it. It's not just the sad parts. And I think if we're ever going to have a useful conversation about race, class, gender, religion, sexuality, politics, anything in this country, we have to be able to make it bigger than your feelings. But we also have to give you other things to feel besides tense. It shouldn't all be about tension. Some of it's got to be hopeful. Some of it's got to acknowledge that that's really amazing. I didn't know that. That's kind of cool. Or are you actually anti-DEI because you don't see anything cool in your own story and you feel left out? Is that really the issue? All these other groups have something interesting to talk about and you're just a plain old white guy and that's got you feeling away? 
because you feel like you're not allowed to own what's beautiful and noble and wonderful in your own heritage? That sounds like a personal problem to me. But if that's the problem, that's a solvable problem. And maybe that's a path forward. Maybe it's partly about giving people permission to elevate and ennoble their own heritages, no matter who they are, including if they're white, but also telling them to take several seats just because somebody else gets to be in the spotlight for a minute. I know that makes you feel a little cold because the bright, white-hot light of attention which you took for granted your whole life is not shining on you for a split second, but hey, it'll come back to you. There's enough light for everybody, but it can't always just shine on you. And sometimes it's going to illuminate things you may not feel comfortable with. And it's all okay. Because unless you know the story about how African Americans were locked out of the sciences, how we were maligned by goofy scientific theories that tried to convince us that we were less of a human being, unless those things make sense, it destroys the context for something like this for a Lanny Smoot and the hollow tile floor to even seem as cool. It adds a layer of meaning to the story. It doesn't make it harder to hear. It makes it better. It makes it even more wonderful when you see how cool this thing is and you learn, oh wow, we didn't think we could do that once upon a time. And now look, look how far we've come. It's look how much we have to offer. But the end of the story doesn't make sense unless you tell it from the beginning and you don't leave anything out. Can we do that? Are we able to do that? Or will we let our fear of the hard parts get in the way? I think the story of America is damn hard to hear, but it's not over. It's had its downs, but it's had a lot of ups. And I don't know about you, but I would like to be part of writing the rest of it. As the old Negro spiritual once said, and you can expect to hear a lot of Negro spirituals this month, I believe I'll run on and see what the end's going to be. That's what I think. And I'm glad to see that you guys think that this is cool as well, Sarah, this is beyond cool, Skylar. Oh, this is dope. Yeah, I think it is very, very cool. Um, I, I yeah, KP Koopa, hello. What? Wait, is Disney developing new ways to make walking on a green screen look like walking in real life? Oh, that's the thing. I don't think. I mean, that is that is a projected floor. I think they can also put the projection underneath the floor and just kind of do whatever they want for that to do. Uh, <laughs> Solange the first writes, "Does this mean I can finally do a moonwalk? Yay!" I think so. I think that could actually be what it is. I don't know what that could mean, but I'm just, I'm, I'm super excited. I'm so incredibly excited about this. I think it is very, 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 very cool. And I look forward to, to seeing more of it. Uh, oh, Lee Rohde, I see your comment on YouTube. I don't know if this caught the entire comment, but Lee writes, I'm a child of the 50s. Disney was not always diversified and wonderful. I'm just saying, true. Very, very true. You look at some of the old Disney films. Oh, my God. The Siamese Cats and Lady in the Tramp. Lord Jesus. But one of the interesting things, I wonder if I can find a screen grab of it. Hold on just one second. 
Um, give me just a second. I'm just going to look for it because I think the way that they've dealt with this is pretty, oh, there it is, is pretty remarkable. Because in some, can I find an image of it really quickly? Here's one. Let's see. In some Disney movies, you will find a warning that refers to what they call outdated cultural depictions. Here's one. Here we go. From It's a little blurry, but I'll, I'll use this anyway. Some of them, this is from IGN. Disney had begun putting warnings with some of its content. It's like this message that you can't really skip. It's like a little over 12 seconds, 10 seconds. Oh, here we go. It's a warning that shows up before some of these films, like Dumbo, especially Dumbo. Did you ever see an elephant fly? Oh, Jesus. That just, that's, that's the wrong answer. But before you watch Dumbo, you get this little warning that's, that reads, this program includes negative depictions and or mistreatment of people or cultures. These stereotypes were wrong then and are wrong now. Rather than remove this content, we want to acknowledge its harmful impact learn from it, and spark conversation to create a more inclusive future together. Disney is committed to creating stories with inspirational and aspirational themes that reflect the rich diversity of the human experience around the globe. To learn more about how stories have impacted society, visit disney.com slash stories matter. I think that's the right way to go. I think that way you can still see the original, but you go into it with a little bit of context so that you know that they know that that's not cool. That like the whole, I, I mean, and do you know how hard it is as a little black child when you grow up into a big black man to realize the remarkable, and if you go to Stories Matter, I mean, it, it will, it'll walk you through this. Like this is the Stories Matter page from Disney. And it, it lays out some of this little video about the advisory because happily ever after doesn't just happen. It takes effort. Effort we are making. Damn right, Disney. Thank you. And they talk about their efforts to diversity. And then they, they have the text of the advisory right here. And then further down, examples. And they, they narc on themselves, Disney does. They tell their own drama, put it out there. The Aristocats with the, the, the racist caricature who's playing the piano with chopsticks. Lord Jesus. And then... The crows in Dumbo. Ooh. The leader of the group of crows in Dumbo is named Jim Crow. Y'all. And they talk about the song of the roustabouts with the, the black workers who build the circus tent. But like, yeah, it's the, the, the shock when I, as an adult, heard the crows singing, well, I be done seen about everything when I see an elephant fly. I was like, ooh, Jesus, does this mean I have to burn down Disney World now? Like, what do I do with this information? But being able to talk about it and at least own it, I mean, and they go through a number of movies. Peter Pan, the depiction of Native Americans, call it the, who refers to them as Redskins, Swiss Family Robinson, with white actors appearing in yellow face or brown face. I mean, this is Disney narking on themselves. But that's the right thing to do. And I think that because of that, a lot of these other efforts with like banning DEI and things you can't say in the classroom, I think they're going to fail because we're already past that culturally. We've already reached the point where we're able to go, 
seeing it is better than not seeing it. It was wrong then, it is wrong now, but removing it or ignoring it would be the same as acting like it doesn't exist. So we're gonna show it in context so we can learn from it. That's the correct answer. Joseph, yes, you're right, I just saw your comment. Joseph writes, Warner Brothers started putting a very similar disclaimer in front of a lot of their classic cartoons as well. For example, Tom and Jerry. Yes, indeed they did. The Looney Tunes collection that came out on DVD years ago, uh, remember when a movie was a physical object, had a, an introduction by Whoopi Goldberg who gave their disclaimer. You'll find it on YouTube if you search for it. I love the way that she put it because she kind of acknowledged, I love these cartoons they also contain these stereotypes. They were wrong then and they are wrong now. But removing them would be like acting like they never existed. That's the correct answer. And yes, Ten Under, I, like, I like the way Ten Under puts it. Wrong then and wrong now is so much better than the dismissive things were different then. Exactly. We know things were different then. We know. But how do you feel about the difference? That's the key. Right? That's the part that's the most important. And I love that. So congratulations, Lanny Smoot. Uh, if you're watching, Brother Smoot, um, could I I just want to I just want to serve. I want to serve on the fancy floor just one time. Please, can you please let me surf? I just I know you don't know what to do with it, but I can figure out some things. Um I I mean I, I'm not the best dancer, but I can kind of, I can perform on the floor. I could do the news on that floor. I could be like walking someplace. I could be on the floor walking this way. And then all of a sudden the wind starts to blow. And then I'm like, oh, now the wind, oh. And then I come back and I could be, maybe I could be like surfing someplace. Or maybe I, you know, I start to, I like Thor and I spin Thor's hammer and I start to fly him and I could take off and then go through the air and then, um, and then I can land on the back of a horse and we can ride off into sunset with the princess and, and save the day. It's just an idea. We'll workshop it. You, you know, just uh, call me. I'm going to keep dreaming big dreams as we make our way out for the day. I really appreciate you being here. We will talk more about the black experience and black heritage throughout this month and maybe year round. Who knows? Remember, please, to go to my site, nightlightjoshua.com. Also, follow me on YouTube at nightlightjoshua. Stay in touch. I'm so glad that you chose to spend time with me to hang out, to share your questions and your thoughts. So until we meet again, I'm Joshua Johnson. Thanks for making time. Enjoy the rest of your day. And as always, my friends, keep shining because someone somewhere needs your light right now.